before we open up uh, the word this morning, just want to uh, give you a few updates. Uh, if you've gotten our emails this week, you know it's been a busy week with uh, a lot of people in and out of the hospital. And, and I know as many of you, you're probably wondering, have been praying for Ron Tomasetti, who's in McGee Rehab. Uh, he has been there a week now. And uh, the good news is he is making some improvements. They see that his strength is, is getting better. He passed the swallow test on Thursday, which means that he can eat now real solid food. There's no restrictions. And they're very happy about that. Um, you know, his estimated time there at McGee is five to seven weeks, and then he'll come home and he'll have other rehab that he'll still have to continue to go through. So uh, they are seeing some positive things. Uh, they're waiting to get uh, approval from his doctor so Ron can start getting on the treadmill. And, uh, and so they're excited about that, and they're hoping to get that approval this week, and he'll be in a harness, and, uh, and, but he'll start to use his legs and be on the treadmill. And so, so there's been a lot of uh, positive things, uh, but this morning they also got, ha- got news of a little setback. Uh, they discovered some blood in his urine, and, and so they're afraid that maybe uh, there's a possible infection. So they're hoping that some, some medication can, uh, uh, can help to clear that up, and it will not affect his uh, rehab there and, and his physical therapy. So continue to pray for Ron, continue to pray for strength and for energy, for a good attitude as he faces rehab there and as he has physical therapy. Pray for uh, uh, Kathy and the family as they travel back and forth to Philadelphia, uh, that they have safety. Uh, Pray for encouragement, uh, that, that Satan would not get them discouraged. And, uh, but uh, Kathy and, and the family are just so thankful for all your prayers and, and, and of your notes and, 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 and things of encouragement and the meals that you've brought them. And so I just wanted to, to give you an update on, on Ron. We also had uh, uh, some other surgeries this week. Uh, Flora was in uh, the, the hospital this week for a shoulder replacement, and, uh, and things went well there. She is home and, uh, uh, and, and doing well, and so we're thankful that. Melanie uh, was in the hospital uh, this, this week also for another procedure on her kidneys, and, and thankfully this one went, uh, went better. I know that they had a, a difficulty in the beginning getting an IV in, but as she came out of the surgery and out of the anesthesia, she felt so much better uh, because of that, and so, uh, uh, so we're really thankful for that. And, and, and so uh, as b- b- before we open God's Word, let's just pray and, and lift up these and some of our other individuals who are going through difficult times uh, physically. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you are our Heavenly Father. And as our Father, you care about us. You love us. You care about the things that, are, uh, that weigh heavily on our hearts and the things that we go through. And Lord, we lift up uh, your children this morning that uh, have been going through some difficult physical uh, times. We pray for Ron and just pray for uh, just as they try to figure out what's happening uh, with this blood in, in his urine that they discovered uh, this morning and pray that uh, the antibiotics that they give him would, would, he, would uh, clear that up and that he would be able to uh, continue his rehab and without an interruption. And we just pray that you continue to work in his, his body and, and, and encourage him. And Lord, we just pray for healing. You're the great physician, and, and, and you, we, you can do miracles, and we pray for healing. We pray for Kathy and the family and give them encouragement and strength. Lord, we're thankful how you've watched over and kept Flora safe as she went in the hospital this week and, and had, had shoulder replacement. Thank you for her life and her example of, of what a faithful servant to Jesus Christ looks like. Pray that you would just encourage her today and, and help her shoulder to heal. We thank you for Melanie and her, her example, too, in the midst of, of, of 
uh, difficulty and, and, and just the uncomfortable uh, times that she faces with her kidney and the pain that she faces, Lord, just her faithful service to you and how she loves you and loves people even though she's going through difficult times. And we're just thankful how you watched over her and kept her safe through this procedure and, and just pray that you would just continue to heal her and just encourage her today. Lord, we're thankful that, uh, that you've given us your word. And this morning as we open it up, Lord, may you speak directly to our hearts. May you challenge us to be more like you. May you encourage us uh, to follow you and be the person that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, want to turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, that is the majority of the place that we're going to spend our morning this morning. And so you can turn to, to Romans chapter 6. And, and, uh, and as you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you, uh, the question is, how, how do you identify yourself? I mean, think about it. How do you identify yourself? As, as, as children... You know, we identified ourselves by our birth certificate, right? Or maybe our social security card. And sometimes, depending on what we were doing or where we were going, uh, you know, in order to prove we, are, we were who we said we were or we were who our parents said we were, we had to produce a birth certificate. Had our name, our footprints, and everything like that. And that identified us as who we were as our birth certificate, or maybe our social security card. As we got older and moved into the teenage years, how, you know, teenagers, how, how do, we, how do you, inter, you know, identify yourself? I think in teenage years, the one thing that really identifies you is what your driver's license, right? And for some of you, you've just, you've just gotten that uh, driver's license, and you're excited about that new freedom that you have. For some, of, for some others of you, you're waiting to finally get that little card that identifies you as I am a driver, I am, I have, you know, I'm an adult, I can, I can operate a car without my parents. A uh, driver's license, that's a big deal. Uh, that's a big deal, and that identifies who we are. Uh, as we go to college, what identifies us? Well, it's our student ID, right? Uh, I can remember going to Cedarville, and they print, they take your picture, and they print off that little ID, and that's your life. And that was quite a number of years ago. I was on campus with a student uh, this year, and, and the student IDs have, have uh, come a long way. This student ID, he scanned it as he went into the cafeteria, so it, so it, it, you know, it was his meal plan. He could use it in the bookstore to, to purchase things. Uh, he even used it to scan it to go into his dormitory. Without his student ID, he would have not been able to do anything. And so your student ID that, that, and in college, that's what identifies you. And as we move into uh, our adult lives, what, what identifies us? You know, what, 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 what sets us apart? What tells other people who we are? For some of us, as we go to work, we have work IDs. Our, our teachers here at Mount Calvary Christian School, they have little IDs that they wear with their pictures. Some reason we, we don't have IDs, so I, I guess we don't need them. Uh, but uh, but but we have stu- uh, you know sometimes you get work IDs. I don't have a work ID, but I was thinking what ID- IDs me is I go to a lot of conferences, and as I go to conferences, I get little name tags, and uh, as you can see, I've collected quite a few over the years I've been here. But uh, as I'm at a conference, these uh, these lanyards ID me, and uh, and I've gone to conferences with a lot of people. 
a lot of people maybe for the very first time, and we have a very important conversation when we go to conferences. It's a very crucial, crucial conversation. And it simply goes like this. Listen, we're going to a conference, and they will give us an ID, a lanyard, and that identifies that we're there for the conference, and that's important. But there is one rule if you're going to go to a conference with me. It's one hard, fast rule. As soon as you walk out those doors, that lanyard better not be around your neck. Uh, that, that, that sh- and, and you might say, well, that's a really strange strange rule, but uh, I've gone to a lot of different conferences in different cities and, and where thousands of people come and gather, and sure, we wear that to, to show other people our name and where we're from, and it identifies us as being at that conference, but the moment we walk out those doors, you know what it identifies us as? Hey, I'm new around here. I don't know, I, you know, I'm just kind of learning the ropes, and, and so this isn't where I'm from, and so feel free to come and take advantage of me. Uh, at least that's in my head, that, that's what I think. So, so anytime I go to a conference, I have this rule that I go over. And, and then, at, you know, we were at a conference in, in, a, in March up in Rochester, and we went to a restaurant, and we're sitting at a restaurant, and we're sitting there, and we watch table after table of people come in with their lanyards on from this conference. And I just sit there and laugh, and, and I don't know, I just get a lot of, uh, a lot of joy out of that. And, and, but th- th- that's my rule, so uh, uh, you can't wear your lanyard outside the conference. But, but that IDs us. But this morning, I want to talk about something else that should identify us as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, something that, that should identify us as followers of Jesus Christ. There are two ordinances which Jesus have, has instituted and established for his church. An ordinance is a prescribed practice. It's something that's been commanded by Jesus Christ for the church to carry out. Last week, Last week, we talked about the ordinance of communion, right? And, and if you were here this morning, I mean, yesterday, last, yeah, yesterday, uh, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about communion. We talked about the importance of communion, that communion is a time to remember Christ's work on the cross for us, that our Savior came and he went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. So it's a time of remembrance. We talked about it's a time of rejoicing, because not only do we remember the work that Christ did on the cross, But we even sang about it this morning, that he is coming again, and he's going to take the church home with him. So it's a time of rejoicing. We also said communion was a time of repentance. It's a time to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our lives and our hearts and make things right with God and get things right with him. And finally, it's a time time of restoration. It's a time, a time to, uh, to make things right with our brothers and sisters, to restore those relationships, to reconcile maybe with some brothers and sisters who, we, who we've had some disagreements with. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the other ordinance, which is baptism. And believer's baptism is an outward identification of an inward transformation. Believer's baptism is the outward identification of an of a inward transformation. It's uh, of our faith in Jesus Christ. It identifies us as followers of Christ. It tells the world that we follow them. And believer's baptism, although clearly taught in Scripture, has been confused and contended for a long time. My goal this morning is to shake away some of the confusion and clarify what God wants us to understand about baptism. You say, I don't know, but in my nine years, I can't remember here the last time we talked about baptism on a Sunday morning. Now, we've experienced baptism at Easter, 
And what a great Easter service where we saw our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ make that public declaration. But we don't talk about it a whole lot. So this morning, I want to concentrate on some core components of baptism. And the first one I want to look at is the method. The method of baptism. And before we talk about this, I want to show you a video of someone's idea of one method of baptism. Watch this video. As we talk about methods of baptism, uh, that is not one of them. Um, uh, cannonball baptism, it may be catching on with, uh, with some, but uh, that, that's not one that really Jesus talks about. I love that. I don't know if you noticed there at the, the one point after he had jumped in the water and he was, the pastor said, all right, he's done, and he went to, to leave. Did you see the pastor grab a hold of him and like pull him back, and then he had his arm around him like he was just ready to put him in a headlock? Uh, uh, yeah, the methods of baptism, hey, there's countless views of men that, that men hold about, hey, what's the right way to, bap- to baptize? Uh, with that kid, it was cannonball baptism. Uh, but one of, the, one of the ways is sprinkling. Uh, that's one way that some denominations and, and some people hold is, is the right way to baptize. It's a, taking a small amount of water and dripping it on someone's head. Uh, you know, uh, and like I said, some denominations, that's the way that they practice baptism by sprinkling. Others, it's by pouring, or they take a, a pitcher of water, and they, uh, they pour it on top of someone's head. For other uh, churches, denominations, they, they view baptism by immersion, uh, to totally submerge someone into water, and that's what we do here. And for others, they're not really, you know, it, you know, it just matters that it happens. They're just into it happening. It doesn't matter the, the method as long as it happens. And so, you know, there's a lot of different views out there in the Christian world about how, how should baptisms happen. Uh, and after we saw that video, maybe we'll see some cannonball ones uh, at our local, uh, I mean, at our annual uh, um, summer baptismal at the, at the Rutz Pool. But you know what? There is a consistent view in Scripture. While there's countless views of men, there is a consistent view in Scripture. And the Bible clearly teaches baptism by immersion. It's pretty clear throughout Scripture. In Matthew 3, 5, and 6, uh, it, tells us, it tells us about John the Baptist, and it says this, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. In John 3, 23, again, it's talking about John the Baptist, and it says, Now John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, 
and the people were consistently coming to be baptized. And so we see John the Baptist. He is baptizing people, and he is baptizing them in the Jordan River. He is baptizing them at a place where there is plenty of water so that they could be immersed into the water. They just didn't fill up a pitcher of water and and take it to them and pour it over them. or uh, They went to where the water was, and John baptized them, and he immersed them into the water. There are two Greek verbs used in the New Testament for baptism, and they both mean to, to immerse, to dip completely, to dip into, to submerse. And so when we look at Scripture and we look at baptism, it happens by immersion. And the Greek noun used in the book of Acts talking about baptism refers to, uh, to always refers to Christians being immersed in the water. And that famous story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, starting with verse 35, it says, Then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. We you know that the eunuch was, was reading the book of Isaiah, and Philip uh, entered into the chariot with him, and he told him about Jesus. And listen to what he says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. And there in that, we see that they found, they found some water, and they went down into the water. And Philip baptized the eunuch. He immersed him in the water, and they came up out of the water. So they needed, they needed a decent amount of water to do the baptizing. And so whenever you read about baptism in the New Testament, it's talking about immersion. It's the only possible meaning. It's the only possible meaning. So, so the method, the biblical method for baptism is immersion. And you might say, well, what does that matter? Well, it does matter because we're going to look at the message of baptism next. And that's why uh, the method matters when you think about the message. I looked in one of, my, uh, one of my theological dictionaries for the definition of baptism. And this is what it told me. A Christian ceremony by which a person is immersed into water. Pretty, pretty straightforward, right? And here at Mount Calvary, we have a baptismal, right? Right behind this wall. There's a baptismal tank. And, and, and when we have baptisms in, in, the, in the winter, in the spring, in the fall, that tank is filled. And whoever comes to be baptized, they are immersed into the water. Now, in the summer, that's a different story. In the summer, uh, thankfully, in the last number of years, the, the roots have been very uh, generous to allow us to come to their house and their pool and have an outdoor baptismal celebration. And those are great times of our family to kind of come around and, and, uh, and, uh, and celebrate the, the baptisms that are having, uh, that, that happened that day. And, and, and if you notice, you know, maybe the location changes, whether it's here or at the Rutz house. I remember on, on one of our trips to Honduras, we were there and we were ministering, and some of our students said, you know what, I've never been baptized, and I'd really like to be baptized. And so we went into the ocean, and there I got to baptize some of our students and immerse them into the ocean. And I hope you realize that the location doesn't really matter, but no matter where that location, the method stayed the same. Whether it's at the Rutz pool, whether it's here, whether it's somewhere else, 
you know, when we baptize, we, we immerse the people into the water. And you might say, well, why? Why do we do that? Well, because there's some significance that, is, uh, that we need to look at. What, uh, baptism is a symbol that we need to understand this morning. It's an object lesson. It's a physical depiction of a profound spiritual truth. And if we change the structure of baptism to anything but immersion, then we change the message or we confuse the significance of what baptism is supposed to stand for. And so you see, the method is important if we understand the message of baptism. It has a great spiritual significance that can only be depicted by immersion. Baptism is symbolic of the believer's union with Christ in his death, resurrection, and burial. And in Romans chapter 6, it kind of walks us through this, this depiction of what baptism is all about. And I mean, if, if you have some extra time on your hands, Romans 6 is a great chapter to camp out in. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in Romans chapter 6. And, and, and in Romans chapter 5, Paul is, is just getting finished, and, and he's talking about, you know, in the beginning of Romans, he's talking about sin, and, 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 and Paul makes a statement, you know what, you know, it, you know, should we keep on sinning so grace can abound? In the end of chapter 5, and Paul says, no way, we, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't keep on sinning. We've been saved. And then he, he transfers into Romans chapter 6, and the title of my Bible says, Dead to Sin, Alive in Christ. And so in Romans 6, 3, it says, Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? And here we start, and we see the first uh, idea about baptism. It says, we are immersed into Christ. We are immersed into Christ. All Christians are baptized into Christ. We are united with him. We are made one with him. When we put our faith in him, we are connected with him. We are immersed into Christ. And so Paul says that, you know, that, that, that's something that we need to understand. And so he's using a physical analogy of water baptism to teach this spiritual reality of the believer's union with Christ. It was a public symbol of a Christian's faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, hey, first of all, you know, this is symbolic of our, 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 un our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And it starts off, we are immersed with Christ. We're baptized into him. We are united with him. It's a permanent unification. And he goes on in, in, in verse 3 and says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united in him in a resurrection like his. And he says we're immersed into Christ and we're also united with Christ in death and resurrection. We are, uh, we are identified with Christ in death and resurrection. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Romans 6, said this, the basic truth that Paul is teaching is the believer's identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. Just as we are identified with Adam in sin and condemnation, so we now are identified with Christ in righteousness and justification. What a powerful, powerful picture. What a powerful statement. We died with Christ and rose with him in order that we might have a new life through him. So that we can have a new life through him. And that new life 
Uh, when Paul says, you know what, you need a new life, it's talking about, uh, you know, our new life in Christ has a different characteristic. It has a different quality. It's brand new. Our life has totally changed. And just like sin characterized our old life's righteousness should now characterize our new life. We are identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we move on into Romans verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6, and it says, For we know our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And now Paul tells us that not only are we, uh, not only are we immersed into Christ, not only are we are identified with Christ's death and resurrection, we are uh, independent of sin's control. We are independent of sin's control. Paul is saying that, that, that the, as believers, we should be well aware of the fact that in Christ we're not the same person that we were before salvation. He says our old self has been crucified, which means our old life of sin is put to death and destroyed. We are not like we used to be. He goes on, and you know, we have a new life, a new heart, a new spiritual strength. We are brand new. He goes on and says, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Sin is made ineffective by removing its power. And finally, he says, we should no longer be slaves to sin. And this is, this is telling, Paul's telling us that all Christians, while we're capable of committing sin, we are no longer compelled or controlled by sin. Paul says, hey, you know what, as Christians, you know, even though we have a new life in Christ, we're capable of committing sin, but sin no longer controls us. It no longer dominates our life. It no longer is what we're known by. It no longer dictates or directs our life. We are brand new. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his uh, commentary on, on Romans, uh, an exposition of chapter 6, tells, tells of a helpful illustration to kind of help us picture of what our new life looks like. He says this, he pictures two adjoining fields, one owned by Satan and, and one owned by God, that are separated by a road down the middle. Before salvation, a person worked in Satan's field, was totally subject to his jurisdiction. But after, after salvation, the person, he moves into God's field, and, and he works for God, and now subject to only God's authority. And as he plows in this new field, sometimes the believer looks over to that old field. Sometimes he's influenced by his former master who seeks to entice him back into his old sinful ways. And Satan often succeeds in temporarily drawing the believer's attention away from his new master and his new way of life. But he is powerless to draw the believer back into the old field of sin and death. We are made new. We are independent of sin's control. And finally, in verses 11 to 14 in Romans 6, Paul goes on and says, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. 
Finally, Paul tells us we are instruments of righteousness. We're independent of sin's control, and we're instruments of righteousness. Sin no longer controls us. And Paul says, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. I think that's an interesting phrase. Uh, Paul says, like, Paul says that don't just offer some of yourself. Don't just give God some of yourself. Paul says, offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. And Paul is teaching all Christians need to continually choose to say no to temptation and sin and yes to obedience to God and his word. I see Paul in Romans 6 shows us the spiritual reality of what that physical act of baptism looks like. We're immersed into Christ. We are identified with his, with his death, burial, and resurrection. We are independent of sin's control, and we're instruments of righteousness. So this physical act of baptism demonstrates the spiritual metamorphosis the believer has experienced. He is immersed into Christ and, and we go from death in our sin to life in Christ. And that's why the, the method is so important. Because the method and the message go hand in hand. It goes together. It's a physical representation of this spiritual reality that Paul was telling us. And so we've seen the method, we've seen the message, and now let's look at the mandate. Let's look at the mandate. And first, the church is commanded to baptize. The church is commanded to baptize. In Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission, Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, and he gives them their marching orders. And he says this in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, our authority, is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to us, and he's giving the church its mission. And the church's mission is very simply to make disciples of all nations. God calls us to, to go and share the gospel worldwide so that people might put their faith and trust into Jesus Christ. And not just here in Elizabethtown, but, but all around the world. That was God's mandate. That they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they become disciples. Disciples are a follower or a learner. And that's the church's mandate. And then Paul and then and Jesus gives us three requirements for filling that mission. The first requirement was to go. Jesus says, Go. He says, Hey, church, don't wait for the world to come to you. Go to the world because they're not going to come to you, but I want you to go to them with the message of the gospel. He says, so go, go and share the gospel. Go and tell the world how they, can, how they can have a relationship with me, how they can be saved from their sins. And when those, when those who hear that respond positively, the next command that he gives is to baptize. He says, go, share the gospel. When they respond to the gospel in a positive way, baptize them. Now, baptism has no part in the work of salvation. It has no part in the work of salvation, but it's the God-ordained and God-commanded accompaniment of salvation. And the church is commanded by Christ to administer it to his followers who have positively responded to the gospel. 
So Paul says, go share the gospel. When they've responded, baptize them. Baptize them. And then he says, teach. Teach them. A believer is called to a life of obedience to God. And in order to obey him, in order to follow God, it's important that we know what God says. And so one of the missions of the church was to teach God's word so that disciples could, could follow after Christ and live for him. And so the church is commanded to be baptized, but you know what? The Christian is also commanded to be baptized. In Acts 2, verses uh, 36 to 38, we see, and we know Acts 2, the, uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon uh, the disciples, and, 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 and uh, uh, Peter is getting ready to give this great sermon to all these Jews in Jerusalem. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he boldly gets up, and he, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's a pretty gutsy statement. He is in Jerusalem with all these Jews, and he says, Hey, you know that guy that you just crucified, Jesus? He is the Messiah. You got it wrong with him. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. That is a lot of baptisms. You need a lot of water. Or need a lot of time to get 3,000 people into the baptismal tank. And as we look at these, these verses in Acts 2, it, uh, there's a few things we need to realize. First of all, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ saves you. Ephesians 2, remember? First by, first by grace you've been saved through faith, not, from, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, you know, when some people read Acts 2, they think, well, they think it's teaching baptism regeneration, that you can't truly be saved and, let, and, and forgiven unless you've been baptized. But, but Scripture never contradicts itself. And as you look throughout Scripture, we know that time and time again we are told that, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other acts that we put to, put to it. It is simply by, by coming to faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so baptism doesn't save us, but what it tells us is baptism demonstrates we are saved. It demonstrates that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's evidence of our genuine repentance, rejecting sin and turning and committing our lives to follow Christ. And in the New Testament, believers were baptized on the, uh, as soon as they made the profession of faith. And it, it usually happened immediately. It was an indicator of their salvation. And here in Acts 2, Peter calls his listeners who have trusted Christ to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and, and you might say, well, why, why does he call them to be baptized? Well, in a sense, Peter's not allowing for any secret disciples. He's saying, you know what, if you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, then make a public statement. This is something that you, this is something you don't keep private. You make a public statement. Baptism would mark a public break with Judaism and a public identification with Jesus Christ. And such a drastic public act would help eliminate any conversions that weren't genuine. 
And by publicly identifying themselves as followers of Jesus, these individuals risk becoming outcasts in their society to show their genuine allegiance to the Savior. In essence, when Peter says, hey, you know what, if you trusted Christ, be baptized, in essence, what he was saying is, hey, show what team you're on. Show whose team you're on. You're either on Satan's team or, or God's team. And, and you know, uh, we, we like to watch team sports, and in every team sport, they have uniforms, right? Tonight, Zachary and I are going to watch the Heat play the Spurs, and they have different uniforms on. So that each, so whoever's on the court can recognize, hey, you know, we have black uniforms on, we're on the same team. No, you have a white uniform on, you're on a different team. Well, baptism is kind of like, hey, show yourself whose team you're on. By being baptized, you show the world, hey, you know what? I've changed teams. I've gone from Satan's team to now I'm on Jesus' team, and I'm not afraid to show it. I'm not afraid to show it. So as we conclude today... I have a question for you. Adults, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? And if not, why not? Why haven't you followed into that? And and if you have, that is great. That is great that you've shown. Students, have you been baptized? And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I'll do that when I get older. Why? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if he has saved you from your sins, if he has rescued you from death and given you eternal life, what's there to wait about? Why should we wait? On July 14th, we're going to have our annual summer baptism service at the Ruts. And if you've never been baptized, if you've never publicly identified yourself as, you know what, I am on Christ's team, can I encourage you? Why not do it this July 14th? Why not there in that great setting around the pool with your church family, why not take a stand for Christ and say, I'm on his team, and we will celebrate with you. And if you're here, and you've never been baptized, and you want to be baptized, I encourage you, talk to Pastor Dick, talk to myself. We would love for you to experience that. We would love for you to share in that special day. We would love to celebrate you going public and, and, and sharing for all the world to see, you know what, I am on, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm on his team. I have... I've gone from a life of sin to a life in Christ, and I'm not ashamed of that. And parents, do you have kids who haven't been baptized? Well, maybe this is a good opportunity for you to share with them your baptism experience. Share with them why that you were baptized. And if your kids are believers in Jesus Christ, ask them, would you like to be baptized? We're going to have that conversation with Zachary. He, he wasn't ready last year, but we're going to talk with him this year and say, you know, do you, do you want to make a public confession, a public statement, a public declaration that, I'm, that you're a follower of Christ? July 14th, we're going to have a baptismal service. If you haven't been baptized, we encourage you and welcome you to participate. We'd love to fill that pool with people. We'd love to, uh, back in, in, in the days, they, they called dunk 
we'd love to dunk you. And for some of you, we'd love to dunk maybe a little bit longer than others. No. And if Zachary's being baptized, that is going to be the case. Um, but, uh, uh, but seriously, whose team are you on? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to look into your word this morning and, and uh, just learn a little bit about baptism, a little bit about what you tell us, what baptism means, the significance of baptism, and how you've commanded the church to baptize and you've commanded believers to be baptized, Lord. And this morning, as, as we think about our lives and think about our relationship with Christ, if, if we're here and we've never followed through in believers' baptism, Maybe this morning is this morning where we just make a, a, a commitment to say, God, you know what? This is something that I need to do. I love you. I'm thankful for the saving work that you did for me on the cross. And I want to publicly declare that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, it's my prayer that as we come together on July 14th, that we will be able to celebrate with many, many of our church family and the great opportunity to identify yourself, to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we've talked about identifying yourself. And uh, I encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, that this, this summer identify yourself, that you're on God's team. But for those of us who have been baptized, August, I think, 24th, 1992, or August 23rd, 1992, I, I was baptized uh, in a pool. Uh, I identified myself that, that, uh, that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon. And you might say, well, uh, well, you know, we've already done that. Now what? Well, if we have been baptized, you know what? God calls us to identify ourselves this week. Uh, he says that, you know, not only does baptism identify that, that we are followers of Jesus Christ, but when we love others with his love and obey his commands, we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. So as we leave here this morning... Uh, when we go to work and maybe you put on that little badge, may you remember that that just doesn't, uh, yeah, that tells you where you work. But you know what? When we, as we leave here, hopefully we know that we belong to Jesus Christ. We're part of his family. And as we go out in this world this week, let's identify ourselves as his followers. Let's love with his love. Let's care and, 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 and serve like he serves. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Have a great, great week. You're dismissed.